Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Senior Lecturer at Edith Cowan University, Sophia Nymphius. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 35 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I know I say it every time, but I've got another great guest on the phone today in Sophia Nymphius coming from Edith Cowan University. So as I mentioned in the episode, I read her chapter in High Performance Training for Sports. Uh, I read it multiple times. Um, it was so easy to digest uh, from a really complex area. So I thought I had to get Sophia on to kind of expand on what she was talking about in that chapter. So today we talk about agility and how we can detect um, what's actually lacking uh, in when, when we test for agility. We look at the differentiation between change of direction tests and traditional agility tests. We look at time focusing on correct positions and developing agility and in youths, adolescents and females. So just before we get on to the chat with Sophia, just like to say that you can sign up to the Pacey Performance monthly newsletter if you go over to paceyperformance.co.uk. You can also check out all the show notes, so all the links that get mentioned in this episode are going to be at paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 35. You can also get on all the previous episodes of the podcast at paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash podcast. And just a little bonus for you, as a Pacey Performance Podcast listener, you actually get 50% off your first month if you sign up to the Rugby Strength Coach Forum. So a little bit about the forum. So it's a great community that you can be involved in, sharing ideas and resources with some of the best guys in the world. Kia is also putting on monthly webinars. The first one was this week, um, looking at plyometrics and, and using med balls, and that was delivered by himself. But every month, he's going to get a, an expert from around the world to deliver um, a webinar on, on a topic of their choice. So, like I said, if you're, as, as a Pace Performance Podcast listener, you get 50% off. So, as you check out um, from the forum, if you just put Pacey in the, in the code box, which is P-A-C-E-Y, that will entitle you to 50% off your first month. So, jump over to rugbystrengthcoach.com forward slash members and you can take advantage of that discount there so as we get onto the interview with Sophia make sure you've got a pen and a pad because I filled a bit of paper as she was talking so I'm sure you'll do the same there's some great information that is really applicable to to what you're going to do Monday um, with with the guys that you're working with so here is the interview with Sophia Nymphius Hi guys, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Really excited this morning or this afternoon in Sophia's case to get on Sophia Nymphius from, from, coming from Perth. So just before we get going, I'd just like to welcome Sophia to the podcast and ask her to give us a little bit of an introduction on her background, education and what she's currently doing. So welcome to the podcast, Sophia. Thanks so much, Robert. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So it's a pleasure just to give a bit of a spiel on your podcast and I guess to introduce myself um, 
So I do have a PhD in sports science that I um, received at Edith Cowan University in Australia, but originally from the United States. So that's the accent you'll get probably. <laughs> um, but I did my master's of exercise science at Appalachian State with uh, Jeff McBride, Travis Triplett. Uh, my PhD was with Robert Newton, Mike McGuigan. And then uh, I did my bachelor's at a small university in North Carolina, Barton College. And I played uh, basketball and softball there as a NCAA scholarship athlete, so that was kind of the commencement of sport. Um, I was a strength coach in the U.S. at University of Wisconsin at La Crosse, um, and then I did my master's exercise science at App State, as I said, and then I moved across here, and I worked um, with the softball team at, at um, the West Australian Institute of Sports, so WACE, over here. Um, that was my project for my, the length of my Ph.D., and then I went into uh, academia after that. So kind of a life as a strength coach and then um, really enjoyed the sports science side of it. And um, that's why I decided to come out here, really, because I, I knew Australia kind of had that, that name for itself. So I went from the applied side in the U.S. to where I am now and, and stayed here since then. So Cool. So how did the, um, the opportunity in Australia come about? Um, it's kind of a, uh, you, you have mentors that know other people. So my, uh, mentors during my masters, my exercise science masters, um, Jeff McBride, Travis Triplett, they had done some research with Robert Newton, both in the U S and, um, when they were in Australia themselves, one of them for a postdoc and the other one for their actual PhD. And, um, they just, they recommended that I look into some scholarships. And, um, so I applied for a scholarship and was lucky enough, those of you that know the U S system, um, usually, and that system was a big debt in your name. So, uh, the opportunity for a scholarship arose in Australia and it didn't take too much convincing to take that on. So that's pretty much how I ended up out here. A bit cool. of chance, a bit of luck and a bit of pushing my way in there. <laughs> nice. As it always happens. Yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your PhD and kind of the ins and outs of, of what you were doing? Um, yeah, sure. So it feels like forever ago, but um, uh, the PhD project um, basically just being integrated with um, some of the guys that were at WACE at the time, Greg Morgan, who's still a strength coach there, so I'll, I'll give him a name. And he was a, he was a great add-in to my project and gave me leeway with his um, team at the time. And so what we did was we just followed uh, the softball team when we were in Olympic sport. I'll put that plug in. But um, at the time, and um, we um, wanted to look at um, just kind of the process of your traditional periodized plan. It's kind of those things that we do day in, day out as strength coaches. But if you look at the research, there's not a great deal of studies that are beyond maybe 12 weeks. It's pretty sparse to find what we actually do in a year as a strength coach in the research. And so we just followed um, our team. We wrote our typical periodized plan and we we went through block periodization like many people would follow. So nothing uh, groundbreaking, but what we tried to do is um, look at, we, we looked used um, muscle architecture as our underpinning mechanism that we followed, and we just tried to look at changes in their cross-sectional area, fascicle length, pination angle, as they went through their season and married it up with performance changes so we could understand you know, how, how those performance changes came about, not just that they do come about. So um, quite a mix of applied and mechanism in that PhD, but nonetheless, it uh, got me to the point I am today, and it let me stay as a strength coach for 
that entire time, which was my, my goal when I was there at the time. So very interesting. Cool. So I just want to move on to get onto a little bit of a chat about, um, about agility. Uh, I'd read your chapter in high performance training for sports and went over it again um, and again. (laughs) So that was really interesting. (laughs) So just want to tell us a little bit about um, testing for agility. And I say agility with um, the kind of imaginary little, little fingers in uh, either side of my head. Um, Just talk to us about the testing of agility and um, the the kind of work that you've done in that area. Yeah. Well, um, you know, for my PhD, um, a lot of, what we looked at was just looking at basic relationships between strength strength and um, other variables like velocity during jumps and the like and change of direction performance and speed and um, I still look at speed measures but I kind of got um, just really interested in change of direction because it seems so much related to um, on strength and not not that speed isn't, but um, as you know, and as all the listeners would know, rate of force development is critical for speed. So it's not just your maximal strength, but it's really how fast you attain that strength. But when you change direction, especially when you have a really um, aggressive change of direction, you're actually contacting the ground for a lot longer, uh, double, triple, quadruple times the length of time you would in a sprint. And so that explains why it seems so related to strength. And so I started getting into this measurement of quote-unquote agility, as you mentioned. And, and now that we define agility as having both that physical side of changing direction in response to a stimulus, I kind of set out to answer both questions. And um, so when we talk about the change of direction side, um, when we're testing for that, that's pretty straightforward, so to speak, where you have a given task they go through that task and maybe run up, change direction 180 degrees, come back, and, and the time that it takes for them to do that performance is their change of direction ability. But it gets a little complicated when we say agility because there are, of course, individuals that can physically perform, but their perceptual cognitive, which is basically they see the play, they react to the play, and then they use that physical quality. That's much more complex in a measurement. And so... When we're talking about measuring agility, what we really do is we split it up into two sides. You've got your perceptual cognitive, which is the um, ability to read that play, so to speak, or read that stimulus, and how long it takes you to then react on it. And then once you do react, you're going to use your physical qualities just as you would if you already knew. Um, it's interesting because there's a, there's a lot going on in the scope. and um, I'll give a lot of props. In the area of agility, um, one of my PhDs who's just about to complete, um, Tanya Spiteri, has really published a lot in the scope about measuring that perceptual cognitive ability. And she, of course, went off the backs of Jeremy Shepard, um, who helped us um, on that PhD project, where we're realizing that um, you got to build that physical underpinning. If you don't build that, you can't use it. So you may be able to react fine, and that's great if you're playing a video game, but you, after you react, after you utilize your perceptual cognitive, you have to have that underpinning of physical performance behind it. So when someone's setting out to measure agility, you can't just pick one test anymore, really. If this is something that's critical in your sport, you need to split that athlete up. And, and Tim Gabbett did a great paper. It's probably overlooked too much, 
um, with, with, I think, Jeremy Shepard as well, where they kind of went into the scope where if you're going to test agility, you need to move people into one of four spheres. And those spheres are people that are fast movers and fast thinkers. So the fast movers, that's just change of direction ability, physical underpinning. And fast thinkers, of course, that perceptual cognitive. And then you've got the other three combinations of that, which slow mover, slow thinker, and then a combination of fast of one, but slow of the other. When you have that, then you can understand the long-term development plan, which is probably what people don't really like to sit down and talk about. But the fact of the matter is physical performance can be changed quite rapidly on this scale. So us changing your change of direction ability from a physical side is something you can do within a, a block or two blocks. You get substantial changes. But the perceptual cognitive, even though we're seeing it's trainable, you have to remember that within the sporting sphere, there's so much happening. There's the constraints of the actual sport due to rules. There are constraints of situations. Those things have to be developed over a long term. If you look at a novice athlete versus an elite athlete, that elite athlete has been in so many scenarios over and over again that they actually know events that are going to occur. They can predict. That's where their perceptual cognitive ability can actually be what we call uh, a predictor. So they actually have a negative reaction time where they actually move before the event occurs because they're predicting. That's the ideal scenario. But before you get into even training that, you have to realize if you do have someone that's a fast mover but a slow thinker, you have to give yourself a reasonable time frame to improve those things. There's small things we can improve right away for perceptual cognitive, like training the athlete to look at a particular point of, um, say, the offensive player. So focusing on the trunk. You can't go anywhere without the trunk. So that's, But a lot of novice athletes will focus on other things. They might focus on the feet or the hands where they get, they get tricked. They can get juked. They may only look at the ball. Whereas those um, elite athletes, those better um, individuals for perceptual cognitive, they really do a great job at focusing on an area where they can either predict or is infallible. You can't go anywhere without your trunk. So if an athlete moves the trunk, that's what they're focused on. And there's, there's good research that's just coming out that that is a trainable quality, but then on the greater scope about being able to perceive the entire environment, that's a long-term adaptation. So I think as strength coaches, we're testing agility. Um, like you've said, um, I, I break it up. You've got change of direction and you've got agility. When you want to improve agility, you should constantly be feeding that underpinning physical quality, improving that, because it's never going to hurt. And then understand that it's a long-term athlete development plan for the perceptual cognitive, even though we can make minor adaptations to it. On the great scheme, it's something that the athlete gets with their, whether you believe it or not, their 10,000 hours of practice. So, Cool. Yeah. No, that's really, that's really interesting. So just from, from my point of view, for in the um, perceptual cognitive um, kind of offshoot that you mentioned, is that going to be the, the job of the strength coach or is that going to be something that falls under the, the remit of the technical coach or is it a bit of a combination of the two? I'm so glad you asked that because <laughs> one of the things that I do mention, especially um, bringing strength coaches in and consulting and talking, is that first of all, when you start working on these things that are perceptual cognitive and it starts to bring in the skill 
of the sport, you have to understand what your relationship is with the coach, one, and your role. And if you don't have those very finely defined, you could step on the toes of your head coach by starting to creep into the realm that I do believe is the skills coach and not necessarily the strength and conditioning coach. And that is probably why for the longest time me as a strength coach has mostly focused on improving the physical quality of change of direction performance and when and I'll discuss with my coaches aspects, drills that I think they could work on that can work on that perceptual cognitive. Um, in the literature, you'll see people um, promote small-sided games often. And the thing is that because small-sided games are different, difficult to quantify, so you can't force an athlete to get their 150 meters of change of direction in that small-sided game because it's all based on how they choose to play that game, if you, you can see where I'm going with that. Yeah. Um, you have to kind of go with the coach and say, okay, I recommend that to work on this aspect, which is kind of related to physical performance, but really in the realm of skills, that you insert these types of drills into your skills performance. So I do think it is a, it's a blurred line between is that stepping too far into the skills coach's role or is it your role as a strength conditioning coach? I think it's a perfect opportunity to open conversation with a coach um, where you can show where your roles are going to merge together to get ultimate benefits in performance. But I do say don't just go off doing drills for perceptual cognitive without informing your coach and asking their opinion and seeing what they're already doing on the field that may be getting these same goals across and then you're you're not that you're wasting your time but you're taking up important time that the strength coach doesn't already get a lot of where you could be working on something else during that time frame instead of doubling up potentially on something that's done by the skills coach or the the head coach mm -hmm. no i understand so just to kind of dig a little bit deeper in that so when you're dis discussing this with the with the technical coach what kind of things would you be, from, from your experience, would you be kind of recommending? Would you recommend in a, a specific drill or would you recommend in something that's a bit of a tweak within a small-sided game environment? It is, it's a combination really. So remember that, okay, for instance, if you had assessed the athlete, and I think assessment is something that, that the strength conditioning coach does. So I'm saying that you should be, the one that can identify a potential room for improvement in agility, which is geared more towards the perceptual cognitive ability. But then you bring that up with the coach and say, okay, these athletes here have a lot of room for improvement in perceptual cognitive. Um, and maybe they're also those ones that you consider fast movers. So it's not that you can't work on things, but they are quite high up in the physical aspect. I think at that point you have the conversation with the coach and you say, what types of drills are we doing where this athlete gets the opportunity to work on their perceptual cognitive? Because if anyone knows an athlete or yourself, everyone loves to work on the thing you're good at and you avoid at all costs the things that aren't your strength. So if you have small-sided games with an athlete and their physical quality is just head above everybody else, but their perceptual cognitive is lower on the totem pole, what they'll do is they'll use their physicality 
to avoid needing to predict where someone's to go going. So what you have to do is modify that small-sided game so that they can't use their physicality. They must use more prediction, perceptual, cognitive. They have less time to react. So it is forcing people by adapting a drill or saying what types of roles are, is this athlete playing in the field and is it a role that actually perceptual cognitive isn't that important and if that's the case they may be just literally the workhorse maybe they are the workhorse in the scrum if we're talking rugby you know so the only perceptual cognitive they need to hear is engage <laughs> and then push 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 as long as they're physically strong, you're not too worried about it. So I think it is a combination of both. When you have to talk to the coach and say, what's their role? Does it matter that that's not their strength? And then two, if it does matter, how do we modify drills to ensure they're working on their weakness to improve it? Mm -hmm. Cool. So just dragging it back a little bit. So what kind of tests would you be using to, to assess that perceptual uh, cognitive side of agility? Well, at current... Um, there's, there's a plethora of different ways. So it, it depends if you're going low tech, high tech. So, um, the benefit now is some of our old high tech is quite low tech in cost. <laughs> so, um, so you can run a drill where, um, you're, you're trying to look at that perceptual cognitive and it may be, let's just define one. The traditional one is someone runs, um, what we call a Y drill. So they run at a stimulus, and that could be a person, which is great. It could be a coach. And that coach is going to take a step and then maybe do a dummy pass with a ball either left or right. And the individual is acting as a defender, so they're going to follow that dummy. And what you do is from the instant you take a video, maybe using an iPhone or anything now actually captures at relatively high speed at 60 or 120 frames per second, which is getting up there. 120 frames per second is ideal. And so from the point that the coach moves to the point that the athlete reacts, that will be their, um, their react, their, um, that'll be their perceptual cognitive time. So it's, it's the time frame between those two points that you utilize. And then that, that gives you an indicator of how long it takes them to react between onset of movement versus they move. And that's when you get those scenarios where sometimes the coach hasn't actually taken the step or presented the dummy. We go by step because it's really easy to see when someone takes a step in a direction. They may start to move before the step actually occurs. And if that, um, if that happens, then they get a negative time. So that, that's the basics of looking at perceptual cognitive. And of course, the change of direction is, is just the normal, the normal test done. You still measure the total movement time, so, or the total time for that test, but of course, part of that is just their perceptual cognitive time. Mm -hmm. Cool. Excellent. So I just want to move on to, um, to um, the physical side of things. So we performed a um, change, direction change of direction test. So how can we detect uh, the kind of physical quality that's lacking um, within that within that kind of uh, within that test? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. One of the things that is unfortunate about testing is we often get this discrete number that apparently tells us everything about the athlete. And if you're a coach, you know that's like the opposite from it. It's it's like the scenario where you know an athlete's looking really good, 
but their times aren't reflecting it, and it's usually that time where they're starting to improve, but they haven't been able to manifest it into an actual improvement. So when you're doing change of direction testing, what I always recommend is it's not just the time, and in fact, this is this is where the research is really muddy, um, and it's unfortunate because we're we're out there, strength coaches, trying to read the research and interpret it and and apply it, but. What's happened is we're in a scenario where it's not that we don't know what's important for changing direction, but we probably haven't been measuring it the best. Um, and so often we might take the 505 test, which just to describe to everybody, um, the traditional 505, you have a 10 meter run up and then the clock starts. And then you measure the time it takes to run five meters, change 180 degrees and come five meters back. And in that test, it might take you two and a half seconds to run it. But what we're saying that two and a half seconds means is your change of direction ability. But most of that test, probably about eight meters of it, is actually just your acceleration ability. And so what happens is we get a scenario where sometimes people test well on change of direction, but they're actually just fast and they compensate for bad changing of direction by accelerating exceptionally well. So they come out looking moderate and change direction tests. So when you're looking at the physical capacity of the athlete, you got to put a video camera or you got to stand in the coaching position right there at the change of direction. You either take notes and you might just jot notes down or if you're, you're filming that, then you can refer back. And you need to look at how the athlete's entering that turn and coming out of that turn because that's the purpose of change of direction testing is not really time but how you're going in and coming out of changes of direction. So what you look for is, one, some athletes may not be able to decelerate well. And um, it's, it's an area that's catching on really rapidly in the research. And I think I go on a bit of a tangent about it, um, probably because I've just seen it so much that when you, when you train and when you grow up, everyone's like, how fast can you run? How high can you jump? And no one goes, how well do you land? How well do you stop, you know? But stopping is a critical factor in changing direction. So when you've got that coach's eye on that athlete in and out of the change of direction, or you got the video camera to look back later, the first thing you want to look at is the physical ability to break down or the physical ability to break effectively. And that happens in two different areas. One is actually, of course, in the lower limbs. Can they actually decelerate and keep that knee and hip and ankle in a strong position? Or do you get collapsed? Do you get things that we look at that, one, just look ugly, but two, you know, causes what we'd call force leakage. The force leakage could come out of the knee. It could come out of the hip or the ankle. It's that weakest joint that kind of goes out of place. And the second place that is a really critical factor, so if you see that, then you right away go, all right, um, guys, we got to look at this kid's uh, leg strength. So that's, that's without even looking at the time. If they can't break down, hold a strong position in the lower limb, you got to look at their leg strength. And that's going into the breaking, so you're relating that back to more of your eccentric strength, or coming out, which you probably will double up and be able to tell because they probably won't be a good accelerator. So um, when you do your sprint testing, you'll see that in your 10-meter splits anyway. Then the next part that you got to look at from strength coach position is looking at their uh, trunk. So their body position with the trunk. Some athletes have great legs. They've got tree trunk legs. But they either don't stay strong in the trunk 
or they can't stay strong. And those are two different things. So you, some individuals have to be taught to utilize their quote unquote core strength and others don't have it. And so you have to um, find out which one they are, but nonetheless you identify it by seeing how much their, their trunk sways and you know it. When an athlete comes into a really difficult change of direction, and that's why I like the 505, because it's not, there's nothing harder than going 180 degrees the other way. It's the extreme change of momentum. And the purpose of, of a test like this is to make it as difficult as possible so that it's easy to weed out the top from the bottom. If a test is too easy, like the 45 degree cut is good for looking at basic things, but it can't differentiate the top from bottom performers as well as something that's massively difficult. What you'll see is the athlete will come in, they'll be able to break, they've got that strong lower body, but then you'll see that, I do it in slow motion just to exaggerate, but that sway of the trunk. So the trunk or the center of mass tends to sway well beyond the lower body, which is staying nice and stiff, or you see a collapse of the lower body. And you're starting to see research come out that the velocity of the trunk or the displacement of the trunk relates directly back to how fast that athlete comes out of the change of direction. The faster velocity of the trunk or the more displacement of the trunk, the slower they are out of a change of direction. And for a strength coach, that's meaningful. Not just how long did it take them to complete, but what is it about their performance that I can improve to make them faster out of changes of direction? So... I think that's kind of relating, looking at the test, what do you have to look at and how do you translate what you're looking at to what you need to improve as a strength coach? Mm -hmm. So we've identified some kind of, some sort of collapse, so which is, which is relating to their, their strength. Then are we looking at um, kind of really grooving them patterns, like you say, the deceleration, how, how much time are we spending hitting them correct positions? On actually as a strength coach in our sessions? Yeah. Well, you have to have a look and remember that you don't want to add, add, add. Yeah. What you need to do is while you're programming, you have to have a look and see where you can like kill two birds with one stone. So if you've got an athlete that is, um, is maybe, uh, say, say, let's just for the sake of the argument, talk about the deceleration part. Let's say they're collapsing or, or they just can't, break their momentum going into that change of direction. Um, it could be a combination of both their leg strength and the trunk strength. So what you then go back and you look at the, their program, and plyometrics will be somewhere in your program, I'm certain of it. But you may have to dial it back a bit. And um, uh, Jeremy Shepard does some great stuff with uh, drop landing training. And what you might do is you may have some plyometrics in there, but uh, they may have not um, earned their right to do those plyos. So what you have to do is maybe still have the plyos in there, but split it up, take a step back and do your drop landing. Make sure they're steady. They're learning how to absorb that load. They're learning how to control that trunk. And then you still want to work on that explosive aspect, but you may, for a, a block, split it up and do a drop landing. Then they reset, and then you do a box jump. All right? You don't want to add too much eccentric activity. The benefit of doing that kind of scenario is normally you might do drop jumps or something like that. So you've got an eccentric and then the rapid concentric. Well, I'm just going to split it up the other way till I know that athletes really develop that eccentric strength and control. It's a combination of strength and control. So, you know, strength isn't just, you know, muscle head strength. 
it's neuromuscular control. It's just that people think they're separate entities, but the more neuromuscular control you've got, the stronger you'll be with the same muscle mass you've got. When you do that drop landing, you've got your eccentric load rep one. Then you do the box jump to keep your explosiveness. You don't want to take away from that. But when you land on the box, you're taking away that loading. So you're not doubling up on um, eccentric loading on that, but you're actually hitting two target areas. Then another thing you might look at for that athlete is also not heaps, but just once per week, making sure they actually do some disciplined deceleration work where they don't have to worry about reaccelerating again. It's the same concept of splitting your plyos up into a drop landing and then a, a box jump. Have them running up, doing a jogging at 50%, making sure they can break down in three steps or five steps. That'll be really easy, a really slow jog and breaking down. And then you speed them up into 75% and breaking down in five steps or three steps, or you put a cone that's a distance for them to stop on. And it's just giving them some time to realize that, that they need to work the breaking side of it, the eccentric side, because something we probably don't don't focus on the research enough is that just because you're strong concentrically doesn't mean you're strong eccentrically and the motor patterning between concentric and eccentric totally different so having one does not mean you have the other so if you don't have some time where you get that learning the motor learning of it then you're not going to spontaneously get it so don't add but maybe separate break it up until they start to improve and then you can increase the complexity of it cool that's absolutely brilliant. That's that's ace. Um, so just to kind of um, go off another a little tangent again, um, developing agility in youths and adolescents. How does that um, how does that change for you guys? Yeah, it, you know what the funny thing is, it's just um, it kind of goes about when people ask that question. I think we 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 chatted briefly, but. It's like when people say, how do you develop a change of direction agility in, in women or female athletes? Really, it's, it's really no, no different. You just need to test the athlete, um, identify their weaknesses, and then write a program based on those weaknesses. It's just that youth or adolescents are more likely to be weak in our core level or fundamental movement skills. So we start there, <laughs> and that's where a majority of our training is. And and we want to build that strength base, and then we add some additional, more complex movements, which would be like including some kind of reactive event, like an agility training. Um, but you, you have that in every single athlete. They have to work on everything. But all you're playing with is the percentage of time you spend working on those. You know, it's the same thing as block programming. No one just does only strength and just like throws all. Olympic lifts out of their program completely. But if you're doing a heavy block cycle for strength, you can't and do a whole bunch of your volume load in those Olympic lifts. So what you do is you shift the percentage emphasis. Think of that the same way with a, a, with a development of agility with youth. And um, Rotary Lloyd has a great little paper in SCJ, and I contributed probably the graphs to it because that's, that's me. But um, and what he just talked about was this general discussion about, you know, early on what we're working on is it's still a large amount of fundamental movement. You can't break effectively if you can't 
um, do a proper lunge because a breaking pattern, especially when we go into single leg kind of stance, is very much like a lunge. So you still keep your percentages there. And then we start to work on the physical underpinning of it, the change direction aspect. And we have a small percentage up there into agility. Remembering that these kids are doing free play and they're starting to learn their sport and how to read plays and predict movement. They're going to do that despite them being ready for those loadings or not because it's actually quite low, high loads to work on agility because you have such little reaction time. And once that youth athlete then has good fundamental movement, then you're going to increase the amount of time that's spent on those physical sides. So it may be strength development and it may be their um, change of direction. And then you start to, because you don't have to work on the fundamental movement as much, still leaving it in there, it might become part of the dynamic warm-up though, then you're adding more agility. So I don't like to prescribe, hey, do 50% of this, 30% of that, and 20% of this. But it is always individual relative to that athlete and understanding you can't put the cart behind before the horse. You can't just because elite athletes are phenomenal at agility, we can't just run around and do all agility drills from day one. Because those those youth, those adolescent athletes, any athlete that doesn't have that fundamental movement, strength base, or just basic ability to change direction when they know where they're going, they haven't earned the right to do it reactive. At least in my opinion, there's there's so many people. It's just logic about slowly progressing the loading so that on your clock, you're not responsible for that athlete's injury. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. So you, you mentioned uh, um, female athletes. I'm kind of guessing from that answer from the previous question, it's going to be kind of similar. But is there any special considerations when doing this kind of training with with female athletes? Yeah, I think the unfortunate thing is that just a lot of our female athletes aren't aren't as strong as we would like them to be. Um, and um, so with that, you, you just realize what their limiting factor is and we work on it until it's not. Um, it's, um, it's no different, really, than if we had a male athlete that just happened to skate through the ranks based on their just raw um, athletic ability and not necessarily developed strength wise and they get to this top rank and they're they're just not big enough and strong enough and so we have to start them at square one it's just more of our female athletes are kind of there but i i don't treat them per se any different because then i've got those those female athletes that are just they are phenomenal they are they've got great relative strength they're explosive you know those athletes have earned the right to do lots more complex types of training, be it from a conditioning side or in the weight room or in change of direction or agility training. Whereas a lot of those, um, a lot of the female athletes, because they don't have, it's all about training history. If I don't know why we have so many women athletes that, that come, come to a level, even what would be considered the professional level and their training history is so young, maybe two years of resistance training, three years, when at the same age, a male athlete comes to me with seven years of training history. So I think all these differences and, and the considerations that we talk about when training female athletes, it's not, it's not about their um, gender or sex. It's just about it's more common that women athletes come to us with less training history. 
and therefore we have to kind of take a step back and train them just like we would any athlete that needs a better strength base. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned that. So how do we go about kind of getting these girls um, at a younger age to get them to buy into the, to the, um, to increase that training age by the time they get to you? Yeah, I think that part of it's happening now. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, some of it is out of our control, although it is on a personal level within our control, but it's cultural. It's, um, it's societal um, kind of norms. And that's, that's getting dropped pretty quickly these days. You know, more um, female athletes are seeing the benefits of strength training for performance. And if they are indeed striving to be the best athlete they can, they can't do that without doing resistance training for performance or for injury prevention. The other side of it is probably our fault, um, and I'll say our fault as in strength coaches and researchers, is we perpetuate the bloody stereotype that we do have to do things different for our female athletes because we do things like write papers that are, you know, training neuromuscular efficiency for female athletes when really any athlete that doesn't have good neuromuscular efficiency or good strength they would benefit from that program but it's really sexy quote unquote sorry for the pun <laughs> to uh say you know this is for the female athlete and it's not it, it's probably just for the athlete that may not have the strength base or the training history the only time it's probably warranted to say things like that, if it is really geared towards female athletes from the things that are fundamentally different. So if it's associated with things that are due to a hormonal flux, um, or if it's things that are literally associated with anything because estrogen is slightly higher. But I'll tell you what, that is the 1%. And if we dealt with the 99% issue, which is pretty much we don't have the training age and we don't have the strength that they're capable of, then I'll, I'm happy to start researching the 1% to a greater degree. But everyone focused on that 1% isn't doing us any favors because we need to focus on the 99, which is train them earlier, get them stronger, and then, and then we'll work, worry about the 1%. But I'll tell you what, if you extract a muscle tissue from a female athlete and a male athlete and you put it under a microscope, no one's going to see pink and blue. <laughs> um, it's, it's just going to be muscle tissue. Um, there's some things that are beneficial due to testosterone levels, but I'm still saying that the 99% can be done by us. And it's, it's us stopping the idea that our female athletes are different. There may be differences as a whole due to, um, you know, it, it, that'd go into sports psychology probably. And I'm probably not the person to discuss, not my expertise, but but even there, I've run through the gambit of um, things that are related to uh, motivational factors and um, differences in their um, kind of personality. I've seen differences in personality, motiva motivational factors that range in both my male and female athletes. I think we're like, um, we're over stereotyping the female athlete instead of just saying, hey, these are the things you're good at. These are the things you have room to improvement. So we're going to improve these things by doing this. And if we treated them just like that, they'd probably respond really well and we'd stop so much of the training the female athlete. And we'd probably have a better playing field. We'd probably have a more level playing field between our male and female athletes. Hmm. Yeah, totally agree. That's brilliant. Um, 
I don't want to jump the gun, but I, I know that people are going to um, people are going to go mad for what you've been talking about. It's been absolutely absolutely great. So, I mean, I know we talked a bit before um, we started recording uh, about some of the work um, that you've got going on. So, where can people kind of keep in touch with with you and and the work that you've got going on with your with obviously yourself and your students? Yep, um, a lot of the work we do, ironically, we don't we don't publish because it may be with teams and. You'll get it. You'll get it in a couple of years, but yeah. you know, it's kind of a little advantage thing. But the work that we do publish, like I said, Tenius Pateri, um, it's got quite a series of articles, just a publishing machine, and she really has some great take-home points from her research. So you can look her up, and then I, I do tweet occasionally, so at DocSoph, so D-O-C-S-O-P-H, just a, a bit of a nickname for myself. Um, and then other than that, if you just Google me, um, and then you find me at Edith Cowan University, it's got my profile, and I also have profiles on um, on ResearchGate and um, a, co- a couple of other things soon soon to have a, a little bit of a web page just to publish my research and some of the projects. So probably those means are the best way to have a look. Otherwise, you can always email me, and like I said, a good Google search. I'm not too far away. So <laughs> no, that's cool. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, and like I said, people are going to uh, people are going to love hearing from you. So I mean, I've I've kept you for forty minutes, um, so I'll let you go. I know you've got plenty to do today um, with your all your students that you've got going on. So just like to thank you for your time, um, and it's been a it's been a great great having a chat. Great, no, it's been great, Robert. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, and I'll speak to you soon. Alrighty. Thanks for checking out episode 35 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I'm sure you'll agree that episode with Sophia was absolutely awesome with so many takeaway messages for you to implement with the guys that you're working with. Just a quick reminder before I let you go, you can sign up to the Pacey Performance monthly newsletter over at paceyperformance.co.uk and you can check out all the show notes from this episode with Sophia and all the links mentioned at paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 35. And I will see you in episode 36.